when we start to study empathy and compassion, we came to the conclusion that if you're only in the empathic mode, you can easily fall into empathic distress. Empathy is necessary to know the state of the other. So empathy is the effect that the suffering of others has on you, while compassion is completely turned to the other. You just completely a stream of love and compassion that goes to the person who is suffering. So actually, we found that compassion was the antidote to empathic distress. That leads to emotional exhaustion, while compassion is actually replenishing your strength. Welcome to Mind and Life. I'm Wendy Hasenkamp. It's great to be back and starting off season six of the show. Today, I'm speaking with the renowned Buddhist practitioner, author, photographer, humanitarian, Mathieu Ricard. Mathieu bridges many worlds. He got his PhD in molecular genetics, and then he became a Buddhist monk, studying and practicing in the Himalayas for more than 50 years with some of the greatest Tibetan masters. As we'll hear, his life has taken many other turns, and he was also integral to the development of contemplative science, serving as both a participant and a co-investigator, and bringing his deep expertise in compassion and awareness to the scientific world. I spoke with Mathieu just last month. We start off with his own story, and he shares some parallels between science and Buddhism, and how both gave him an appreciation for rigorous inquiry. We talk about his role as one of the first participants in contemplative research and the importance of scientists collaborating with experienced meditators in these studies. Then Mathieu shares some lessons from his experience being engaged in this research, distinguishing compassion from empathy. And we get into an interesting discussion of how the self shows up or doesn't in compassionate states. That takes us to Mathieu's reflections on altruism and our current crises. And he describes how excessive self-focus can leave us vulnerable, while focusing on others can bring courage, effective action in the world, and also deeper happiness for ourselves. Mathieu also brings in here a framework around three timescales of concern, short-term, mid-term, and long-term. And he reflects on how altruism can help us unite those timescales to address our global challenges. We also talk about life and living systems and what determines sentience and the need to care for our entire interconnected planet. And Mathieu shares about the practice and experience of awe and his use of photography to share basic human goodness. It's always a joy to speak with Mathieu. He carries such extraordinary wisdom and he really embodies a kind of lightness, ease and love while also speaking deep truths and calling for action and change. This conversation felt like a teaching for me, and I hope it does for you too. It's my great pleasure to share with you, Mathieu Ricard. Well, it is such an honor and a pleasure to welcome Mathieu Ricard to the show. Thank you so much, Mathieu. It's great to see you. Pleasure to see you again and to come back to the family of mind and life, which I never left from my heart, but uh, I've been a little at a distance uh, in terms of miles and kilometers. Well, it's wonderful to be with you. 
So you've been such an integral part in the development and evolution of contemplative science and this conversation between science and philosophy and Buddhism. But I'm really curious for you. It strikes me that those elements have all been woven into your life from an early time. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your initial interest in science. I know you got a PhD in molecular genetics and then how that transitioned into Buddhism for you personally. Sure. Uh, well, yes, I was interested in science. Actually, I wanted to become a doctor, but my father said, you know, biology is the science of the future. That's what you should do. And that's the only time I think I've, I've, I listened to him. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to university. I did all the equivalent, I guess, of master or whatever. And then um, I was accepted in the lab of François Jacob, who just uh, two, three years before with Jacques Monod and André Lvoff had uh, received the Nobel Prize of Medicine for mm -hmm. the RNA messenger, how the genetic code is being translated and regulated and so forth. So I was quite uh, lucky in a way because he had only two uh, doctoral students. I was oh, one wow. of the two. So I don't know why he took me, but he took me. <laughs> so for six years, I did a PhD and uh, it was uh, very formative. You know, François Jacob, like my father, uh, Jean-François Revel, the French philosopher, they both gave me the test for rigorous inquiry. You know, mm -hmm. what we, in Buddhism we call pramana, valid cognition. So no kind of uh, mirrors and smokes. So that was a very uh, important aspect of my training, which I, I think I kept throughout my life. Uh, but before even entering Pasteur Institute, I was interested in spirituality at large and not particularly Buddhism because there were not so many Buddhist texts translated at the time, mm. especially in Tibetan Buddhism. But in 1967, a friend of my mother called Arnaud Desjardins was coming back from having spent six months uh, in the Indian side of the Himalayas filming with the blessing of the Dalai Lama, who has said an interpreter, all the great master men and women of wisdom and compassion who had fled the communist invasion of Tibet and were scattered all along the Himalayas. Mm. So I had the good fortune to see that as he was editing the documentary, and I, was, I had six months between university and, uh, you know, uh, doing the last thing before entering Pasteur Institute. And I, was going, I wanted to travel, you know, maybe go to do martial art in Japan, anything. When I saw those documentaries, suddenly it uh, really inspired and impressed upon my mind. The documentary ended up being called uh, The Message of the Tibetans, part one and two. Now it's available even in English on YouTube. Oh, great. We'll link to it. It's a very precious historical document because most of those great masters say probably except his son is the Dalai Lama, no, no more in this world. So when I saw that, and at some point there was a series of silent sequences with different faces, sometimes of great masters like the Kamapa or Dalai Lama or of hermits in their cave and one after the other, and it was so impressive, like seeing 20 Socrates, 20 St. Francis of Assisi alive in our times. Wow. So I, I told myself, I am going there. So the rest of the story actually 
I just finished uh, writing a testimony about all that, uh, how I met my teacher, how the, I spent almost 50 years in the Himalayas. So it's a testimony about them, about the remarkable men and women I met who inspired my life and living you know, 10 years in Bhutan, going 21 times to Tibet. So it's called the uh, Notebooks of a Wandering Monk, and it's going to come out this fall at MIT Press. So it is basically an homage and a testimony. So when I came back, I started my PhD, and then every year during the summer uh, holidays, instead of going to the beach, I would go to Darjeeling, where I had met my main teacher, who was known as Kangur Rinpoche. And uh, he had also very much impressed Arnaud Desjardins. He said, among all the teachers, please, by all means, go and meet this teacher. So he became very spontaneously and naturally my root teacher. I went seven times back and forth. And the last time in the late 72 was a one-way ticket. <laughs> then basically, I spent 25 years there, completely unknown, living with the equivalent, I don't know, something like... $50 a month, which was perfectly enough to live in a small hermitage without electricity, without running water, without anything, but so happily so near my teacher. I spent a number of years in retreat. And when he passed away in 1975, I became close attached to Dilgo Kinsey another great master who was one of the teachers to his son, the Dalai Lama. And I spent 13 years nonstop with this great master, going three times to Tibet with him. He went back after 30 years in exile. During that time, I spent with him 10 years in Bhutan. Just to say that uh, I was very, very fortunate to live intimately with this great masters. And even I'm not gifted for anything, but I was soaked in their wisdom, compassion, blessing, and so so that's what the life I had. And that's to complete the introduction. So that decision to leave Passion Institute was, of course, the right time, like a fruit that is ripe. It just falls in your hand or you cross a mountain pass. And the last few meters is effortless because just the last bit where you go to a new valley, it's just you are not abandoning anything. You are just discovering something new. But something else happened in 1997, which I didn't expect, didn't look for, but happened in my life, is that someone proposed that I do a dialogue with my father, the French philosopher Jean-François Revel. I thought he would never accept <laughs> to speak with a Buddhist monk, even that was his son, because he was a well-known agnostic and uh, quite a polemic thinker. So, but he accepted. So he came to Nepal and we had a dialogue for 10 days. And the book that came out, The Monk and Philosopher, was a huge splash in France, you know. I went back for that, and for three weeks, there was non-stop TV, radios. And from one day to the next, people recognize you in the street, which is good because you know that you, you show you how superficial this is, because it's all because of the media. You are exactly the same person which nobody heard ever about, and it would have continued like that. And suddenly, because your face appears a little bit here and there, you become some kind of a public figure. So it's, you don't get a big head because you didn't change. It's simply that some, some funny light of the projector went on you. So, <laughs> But it changed a lot uh, my life because then things happen and people call me here and there and new dialogues. And that's also in that context that I joined Minor Life. 
Aha, uh-huh. okay. You know, three years after the monk and the philosopher, you know, I was a friend of Francisco Varela, who had come to meet my teacher, Daniel Goldman, came also at that time. And when they did the 2000 uh, Mind and Life on Destructive Emotions, then they thought to ask me to come to present as someone will always do, sort of the Buddhist aspect of how to deal with destructive emotion. Normally, the Holiness Dalai Lama intervenes, but there's always a Buddhist contemplative or so-called scholar, which I was not, who does that. So that was my first uh, exposure to mind and life. And I remember very well that halfway through the five days, you know, that in those days it was five full days. Yes. A whole morning there was two presentations and a whole afternoon discussion with His Holiness. So it was really a fortunate time. You know, it started on a Monday and a Friday afternoon. So something like Wednesday, the Dalai Lama said, that's all fine, but what can we contribute to society? Mm. So at lunchtime, you know, there was all the great luminaries there. Francisco was there, Richard Davidson, Paul Ekman, uh, John kabat There was many uh, wonderful people, Alan Wallace. So there was a kind of brainstorming and everyone came up with the idea, okay, there have been some, you know, so-so research on mind training, training the mind, what some people call meditation. But, you know, it was not always at the sort of top scientific criteria. So they said, let's propose to do a top-notch research, first with long-term meditators. Because suppose there's someone who did 50,000 hours of meditation, and with the best of our capacities in terms of investigation to, you know, an electroencephalogram or fMRI or whatever, we don't see any difference then there's no need to bother about people who did two weeks of meditation. (laughs) But if we do find something interesting in those guys, then we'll see about how they came there. You know, did it wait for 30 years before coming up all of a sudden? Or was it a gradual progression? Or did they get everything from three months and nothing more after? (laughs) We didn't know. Right. So, you know, since I had this scientific background and I was really inspired by this meeting, like Paul Ekman himself, you know, it was the first time he attended. He was not sure he wanted to come. His daughter wanted him very much to come. But he said he found in his holiness the elder brother, which he didn't have. And there was an immediate sort of, you know, it was wonderful. So I volunteered a little bit thoughtlessly to go to the lab. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know what you were getting into. I didn't know. I was end up, you know, spending, I don't know, 120 hours in a fMRI machine all over the place. And, uh, you know, for 20 years, sort of collaborating, not only as a, as a guinea pig or a subject, but sometimes co-conceiving the protocol because, you know, you study meditation, then what? Do you need half an hour to get into unconditional compassion or can you get into whatever capacity you are able to at your own level within 30 seconds? Who knows? So this needed to be tested. And I remember very well the first time that Rishi Davidson pushed me in the his fMRI. He made a protocol. And as we were actually starting, uh, you know, within the, with the mic, I said, look, Rishi, this, I think this is probably we can modify a little bit the time and this and that. And I suggested a few things. So we started again because that was a constant in- interaction, giving suggestions for the protocol, what we could look for from the perspective of the contemplative, and also to make sense of the result. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because, of course, some areas of the brain were activated, 
which were well known for some function, but no, not necessarily relating to your first person experience as a meditator. For instance, I remember one thing that when they saw that uh, the premotor area was activated during the compassion meditation. So I'm wondering why, because you are not doing anything. You're not moving, yeah. Then in my mind, it came the idea, well, it's the readiness being completely available and ready to act out of compassion that's probably part of that compassion. Yeah. So you see, the perspective of the meditator is sort of indispensable, what Francisco called the first-person experience, compared to the third-person experience of what investigators are looking through the what they see in the, the data. Mm. Mm-hmm. So then I, I, it went on and on. You know, that first trip to Madison, I went also to Paul Ekman and Robert Levinson's lab, and they put me to the starter. And uh, then I went <laughs> right. to so many labs. I started knowing all the fMRIs, different types, yeah. with or without light. I went to Princeton. I went to Leipzig and uh, to Maastricht uh, with uh, Tanya Singer, to Zurich. I went all over the place, yes. <laughs> Flying guinea pig. <laughs> and not only that, but also, you know, since I came back with some data and nice graphs, I showed to my friends there in Nepal and Bhutan. I said, look, you know, those scientists, they can see something different when you practice. So why don't you come? So I recruited about 10 long-term meditators oh. who had, uh, I convinced them to come and sometimes I accompanied them. So about, I don't know, 10 of them who had done, say, between 30,000 to approximately, you know, 50,000 hours of meditation. It's very hard to calculate. No, nobody keeps account. But if they had done, you know, three, four years retreat where they practice all day long, and if they practice two hours a day all their life, you can make a rough estimate. And I'm remembering, too, from those days, some of those early studies got you the moniker, the happiest man in the world or something like that, which I know you've always resisted that label. Well, it's not my fault. <laughs> I know. So <laughs> can you share what that was about? <laughs> well, it's a, it's a funny story. It started in Madison, actually. There was this ABC Australian network. They had done something on different emotions like uh, anger, fear, and they did something on happiness. So they came to Richie's lab and then they decided they want to come to Nepal to continue to interview me. And at the end, I sort of, uh, you know, come down from the mountain and you see me disappearing in the mountains. And they say, maybe that is the happiest person in the world. Uh-huh. I see. So nothing happened for a few years, which was good. But then one evening I got, it was in Nepal, I got a call, frantic call. The BBC is looking for you. Say, what's going on? News hour. And then I was put on live and they say, a newspaper this morning said, we found the happiest person in the world and we want to know. I said, oh, what do it mean? <laughs> I said, anyone can be the happiest woman or man in the world if we look for happiness in the right place. So I, I spoke a little bit and then I look at that article and, you know, he meet Mr. Happy. I thought, okay, <laughs> too bad, but it will disappear. But that next few days, it was in the Bangkok Morning Post in the... Chile, oh uh, Colombian Express. So I apologize to Richie and others. It is nothing of my doing. Right. <laughs> and I thought it will go, but it come back by waves. Every few years it comes back. And any amount of disclaimer doesn't work. So I thought, okay, let's leave it like that.
But so interesting to hear how, you know, after all of your time living in a hermitage and really devoting yourself to practice and then how science kind of came back into your life and you're able to engage in all these really wonderful ways with the very beginning of contemplative science. I'm wondering how now all of your 20 years or so, you said, engagement with science in this domain around meditation, has that influenced or changed your view of practice or your experience of practice? I'm just curious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, many of the scientists uh, with whom I collaborated, some of them asked me that. And uh, <laughs> I remember Stephen Koslin, you know, he was a very enthusiastic scientist. He was the chair of the psychology of Harvard. And he asked me that question. I said, you know, of course, it's uh, extremely, uh, I mean, I enjoyed immensely collaborating with scientists. It's really wonderful. I mean, this new sort of sangha of scientists contemplative scientist friends, and it has been very rich and enriching in my life. But when I go back to my hermitage, I just do what I always done and probably better than the fMRI. <laughs> <laughs> and so far, you know, no, I don't think it changed much, I said. Yeah. So he was yeah. very disappointed. He said, well, it must have brought you something. <laughs> well, you know, you just do what you do. And when you do it in the, in the fMRI, you do the same thing. So that uh, changed a little bit when I, we start to study empathy and compassion. I remember sitting with Paul Ekman by the bay in San Francisco, and he said, when you have compassion, do you suffer of the suffering of the other? You know, I didn't know much about empathy at that time in detail. So I said, well, sometimes, yes, you feel, of course, something when you, in the teaching, you said you you must visualize very vividly the suffering of sentient beings until it becomes unbearable, and then you unleash the full extent of your compassion. But at the same time, you know, if you are in this unconditional compassion, objectless compassion, which is pervading everything, you don't feel suffering. And when I think of my great teachers, uh, you know, who had the infinite compassion, they didn't seem tormented by feeling that compassion. So I was a bit puzzled. And so, but it became very clear, and that's one thing definitely I discovered in the collaboration, not that it was less interesting in other labs, but it brought me more insight on certain aspects of what I was doing when I started collaborating with Tanya Singer. Yeah. Because she was the, one of the, and she is one of the world specialists of empathy. So she asked me to come to her lab. So she, first we went to Maastricht because there was someone, uh, Renard Goebel, who had a real-time fMRI. Oh, that means yeah. you can see the on the screen within a few seconds, not immediately, there's a lag, but you don't have to wait for two weeks. So you can feed back in a way, you know, here you are, what is what you do, and, and so forth, push that up and push that down. Yeah, so just in case listeners aren't familiar, you're basically in the scanner, doing a task and the scanner's measuring your brain activity and it's actually processing that data in real time, which isn't normally how it's done. So it's able to feed back to you while you're in the scanner, not necessarily a picture of your brain with activity, but some kind of graph or some metric that shows you, you know, a particular region or a particular network is more or less active. And like you said, there's a few seconds delay, but it's really interesting because you can get some information while you're doing it and then start to make adjustments, yeah. Yes, so then she asked me, 
do what you do, you know, the compassion meditation. She also didn't think it would be different. Right, then empathy. Yes, so I engaged in compassion meditation and she was not used to see what she saw. She said, well, that's not what we see usually. What are you doing? I said, well, I'm doing compassion meditation. So we said, okay, let's stop for a while. So I came out of the MRI and let's discuss. So I, I explained her and then she explained me what uh, she meant by empathy, which is the emotional resonance. You know, if you smile and you're happy, I feel happy and smile. It's different from emotional contagion that is passive. Here you know that you are happy because the other person is happy or you suffer because the other person suffers. And you know that and you know what is the cause. And then the cognitive empathy, which is to put yourself in others' shoes cognitively, but you may not feel what they feel at all. You know, if I'm sitting next to someone who is very scared in an aeroplane and I enjoy it, I can help and take care of that person because I know she's suffering, but I don't feel that. But in terms of emotional empathy, you know, she, she thought that that component should be there. She has studied that. She said that in the anterior insula and all these areas of the brain. So then she said, well, can you try just do empathic resonance with suffering? So I just happened to have seen the night before at the hotel, a documentary on Romanian orphans who were like almost abandoned on their own fate. There was incredible state of uh, some, they were so thin and some of them mm. were breaking their legs just by walking. Mm. They were hardly fed and washed. And when it was like heart rending. On top of that, uh, in the course of our humanitarian projects in Tibet with Karuna Sechen, there was the earthquake in Tibet, oh, in yeah. Yushu and all that. So anyway, I had a lot of images of suffering. And so I said, okay, I will try that. So uh, we did, you know, 40 minutes of that alternating as we do normally a resting state of like 30 seconds and engaging in intense empathic resonance with the suffering and nothing else. And she said, don't do your compassion stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that. And after 40 minutes, I, I burned out basically, which I didn't know before. So then uh, I felt, you know, overwhelmed. I didn't know what to do visualizing those children in Romania. I mean, I didn't know how to handle them. There was this kind of not knowing what to do, a little bit of uh, distancing. Yeah. So because normally you would have always just gone right into the compassion state. Well, when I when I mentioned that to the Dalai Lama, I said, how can you stop compassion? I said, well, I try. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so then at the end of that, I will really try only to focus on resonating, resonating. So at the end of that... Uh, Tanya said, okay, normally we should break after 45 minutes, but do you want to go on or we take a break? I said, please let me go on because I want to sort of, uh, you know, to find an antidote for that state of burnout. So then I, I, I said, no, I'm going to shift to compassion. You know, all embracing, loving, love and compassion, that every single atom of suffering is pervaded by atom of compassion and love, which is the same, you know, altruistic love is wishing others to find happiness and the cause of happiness. And if they happen to suffer, then the astrotic love is called compassion, but it's the same thing. Simply it's confronted with suffering and applied to suffering. So I did that and it completely changed my perception. Mm. You know, it's like a, you shut down some areas and open up some other ones. And in fact, it was the same in the brain, you know, complete readjustment of the activation of the areas of the brain. 
So that was the beginning of an adventure that Tanya just pursued later on in their you know, different studies with more subjects. And we came to the conclusion that you can easily fall into empathic distress if you're only in the empathic mode. Empathy is necessary to know the state of the other. Now, if you are not empathic like uh, psychopaths, then they don't know that, they don't feel anything of the other suffering. That's why they can cut people into pieces and think it's great. They don't feel that. So it's necessary that you know, oh, that person is suffering because there's an impact on me. So empathy is the effect that the suffering of others has on you, while compassion is completely turned to the other. You forget about your sense of self. You just completely a stream of love and compassion that goes to the person who is suffering. So it's very different. So therefore, the more suffering in a way, the more courage, like a doctor on the battlefield, is not going to cry. He's going to do it again and again as to the end of his strength. So actually, we found that compassion was the antidote to empathic distress, and that standalone empathy is like a water pump that without water, it burns. Mm. So that leads to burnout and emotional exhaustion, while compassion is actually replenishing your strength. So we came up with the idea, so there was no such thing as compassion fatigue, as it is known in the medical world, but there's an empathy fatigue. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that uh, went far and wide, but it was pretty clear, and uh, Tanya published a number of papers, some of them I co-signed. So that was a uh, uh, an insight uh, which I had not uh, you know, investigated. And I remember telling some of my Buddhist friends who did many years of retreat, and when they do the practice of exchanging happiness for suffering, one of them told me, you know, I felt a little bit this kind of empathic distress. And I realized that I should have been more in the mode of compassion rather than just empathy. So again, don't take me wrong. No, empathy has nothing wrong. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my friends, right. France Deval would be very upset. It is absolutely <laughs> necessary uh, because without that, you don't know the state of the other. But it's so like an alarm that tells you. Now, the alarm should not ring all the time. Once you know the state of the other, then you should shift to whatever next is, which in that case of suffering is compassion. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, you said something there that, it's just shifting the way that I'm thinking about compassion even right now. You said the self is gone, right, in that state. It's all about the other person and relieving suffering, but it's almost like your concept of self is disappeared. Is that what you meant, or do you want to say more about that? Yeah, well, you see, well, hopefully it would be nice if it disappeared for good. But the thing is, normally uh, empathy and many of the uh, anguish, anxiety, feeling of vulnerability comes from excessive self-centeredness. Now, if you think me, 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 how I feel all day long, then you become very uh, vulnerable because everything becomes a threat or possibly an instrument to give you pleasure or whatever, but you relate to the world completely instrumental where there's me and the world. And the world can be either a threat or something I can use. So it's a very, very extremely polarized uh, way because it's you who is concerned all the time. You are the center of the universe and basically that's what you feel is what matters most by far. So it makes you specially vulnerable. Now, if that sense dissolves, and it's not me, me, me all the time, looking, 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 looking how I feel, 
then suddenly you are free to look around and to look at others. And you can see that you are one. There are infinite numbers. Certainly, their fate matters much more than you. You don't have to sacrifice yourself. But clearly, if you look at the numbers, <laughs> there are many and you are one. So in any case, it's completely open and oriented to others while it was a very small bubble of the self where it feels very stuffy inside and everything is like a storm in the glass of water. Well, now you have an immense space of all sentient beings with their various needs. And of course, you know that you cannot physically, realistically remove the suffering of everyone. I wish we could do that. But in your mind, in your attitude, there is no reason to limit that aspiration, that compassion, even though you know that realistically you will not be able to put that in action at the same magnitude. But what it means by unconditional compassion, that means that you are not excluding anyone from your heart, whether good and bad, whether treating you well or not. This is a different subject. Every sentient being is desirable that the remedy to ignorance, the remedy to the cause of suffering, even the most bloodiest dictator, if hatred, indifference, cruelty, greed was out of that person's mind, the world would be a better place. So you can wish that with your whole heart. Doesn't mean that you wish that person's success in his deadly endeavors. So that's the big difference. And then the self, you know, is, uh, of course, you know you are there, you know it's you, but it's not taking the central stage. think a lot about the division between self and other, uh, which is the topic of a lot of emphasis in Buddhism and deconstructing the self or seeing the self as an illusion or a construction, those kinds of things, which then kind of blurs the boundaries between self and other in these normal categories that we have. Like normally we would have compassion just for those that are close to us, but it can help, you know, expand towards the state you were describing of this kind of unconditional compassion that is not dependent on the person or the being that it's directed to. So I'm just thinking about a lot of these concepts as they play out on the world stage. And I know you've done a lot of thinking and work also on planetary issues, climate change, and other crises that we're facing that seem like they have a lot to do with that sense of self. So can you reflect a little bit on that and how you think about those things? Well, first, uh, before going to the bigger picture, uh, I mentioned an article that uh, a friend of mine did, and he, he made me co-sign, but I'm not sure it was necessary. It's called Michael Dambrun. It's a general journal of psychology, and he made a very large theoretical paper showing that uh, the sense of self, how it correlates with happiness in terms of hedonic and demonic happiness. Maybe it's worth just for the listeners distinguishing what those mean. Yes. So hedonic happiness is to think that by pleasures, you know, all the trappings of success and fame and the status and the, your image and the endless succession of pleasant experiences, which more like a recipe for exhaustion and the famous treadmill effect that the more 
you get used to certain amount of pleasure, then you want more and more and more, so you can get addicted and so forth. And eudaimonia, which is like the same concept as the Buddhist word sukha, is a more like a sense of flourishing, of fulfillment, a way of being uh, that can give you the inner resources to deal with the ups and downs of life and all the different emotions. Even sadness, you can maintain that sense of deep meaning, well-being, compassion, you know, resilience, fortitude, inner freedom. Even there's something sad because it is sad, but we could say it's unpleasant, but it doesn't change your way of being as a person who has found something deep within that makes sense, you can relate to, that is not so dependent on outer circumstances, although it doesn't ignore them. So this is a different continuum in a way. And he found that the more there's a strong sense of self, the more people look for hedonic pleasures or happiness, and they fail. It doesn't work. And the less they have a sense of self, the more you look for a demonic and sort of flourishing. So now to go to the big picture, uh, that comes with, uh, of course, the concept of altruism and care. And we just have a Mind and Love Europe discussion yesterday about care. And we could say compassion. Uh, actually, the book I wrote on altruism has a subtitle called How the Power of Compassion to Change Ourselves and the World. So it came at the, as a kind of culmination of uh, all those years of uh, uh, being with, exposed to scientists, to great philosophers, to His Holiness the Dalai Lama, of course, who is teaching compassion as the main quality we need for the 21st century. And basically a lifelong practice came to the idea that even more than looking for happiness, if we do cultivate an infinitely altruistic and compassionate mind, then happiness is taken care of. And without that, there's no such thing as selfish happiness. It's not working. So I thought even more and more of that, thanks to also coming back to the West, to the monk and philosopher, I got exposed to so many uh, different people and, you know, from politicians, just everywhere. And it became clear that one of the main challenges we are facing today in the 21st century is to reconcile three timescales. Hmm. On the one hand, the short term, we have extreme poverty, you know, a mother who needs to feed her children for tomorrow. So, you know, she has to cut whatever she finds. She cannot think of future generations. She has to survive. So that's the short term. You know, poverty in the midst of plenty. And there's also a short term of uh, selfish interest, you know, making the maximum profit without any consideration for those who will come after you. So that's also short term. Short term profit and short term vision. Then there is the midterm, which is a generation, family, a lifetime. And then what do you wish? Basically, some kind of deep sense of satisfaction that life is worth living. Otherwise, you know, if you live in the most powerful and richest country or yourself with all that, and you feel completely unhappy, what's the point? So flourishing is definitely for the midterm, every single human being and even sentient beings, animals, wants to find some kind of well-being and live their full life in the way that matters most for them. 
And then there's a new dimension that we didn't have till uh, 200 years ago, which is uh, we are shaping now the future of future generation in a way that was not the case until the industrial and scientific revolution. So now they will say you knew or you did nothing, and we are influencing the happiness and suffering in a massive way, as if, uh, you know, after us, there will be nobody. But they will be there, and they will curse us for what we did. So now, there are people who take care of extreme poverty. There are investors who try to make quick profit. There are politicians who uh, make measures for the, for the citizens. There are all kinds of walks of life. And there are scientists who study climate change, loss of biodiversity, the environmental upheavals, the tipping points, all these. And they said it's possible to avert that. Yes, because they don't say it's impossible, because it is possible. But they add, be careful, it is possible, but only if we make drastic changes. So what the public usually picks up, it is possible. Scientists are taking care of that. Well, they don't, because it's politicians who were absolutely undecided because most of the measures they will take, which are necessary to control the environmental degradation, will be probably vastly unpopular for many people. Mm -hmm. So they want to be re-elected. You know, Winston Churchill said, a statesman is thinking of next generation, a politician of next election. That's the problem. Now, imagine that you want to put all these people around the table. It happens sometimes. You know, you get social workers, politicians, investors, uh, scientists sitting around the table. You you can imagine that. It happens sometimes. And then they have to find a concept that allows them to, assuming they want a better world, not to destroy the planet. Well, we can assume that's what we want. You know, even the World Economic Forum in Davos is called Moving Towards a Better World. So even they, they have this idea. Okay, now, we need what concept can allow them to work together. Of course, short-term interest and selfishness will not do the job. Because then you will all be focused on the short term and you will not care a damn for future generation, for instance. You know, if you can make products by employing people for nothing in Bangladesh or somewhere, but make a huge profit in the US or Europe, you will not hesitate if you are selfish. So that's not going to work. And if you don't care for future generation, no hope. So the only concept that works is compassion, or let's say altruism. That means having more consideration for others. So if you do that, you will have so-called what we call a caring economics. And actually, Mind and Life has a, had a meeting on caring economics in Zurich some years ago. So that means the economy at the service of society and not society at the service of 10 people who know owns more than a third of the whole humanity. And someone recently, a, a report of Oxfam calculated that if those 10 richest people we're spending $1 million a day. It will take them 440 years to spend their fortune. This is totally ridiculous and dysfunctional to the core. So caring economics. Then you will do something that favor flourishing in life. You know, at the workplace, the status of the child, the status of woman, condition at work, of transportation, Everything that somehow you can flourish and have a happy life, no matter what you do, a decent life with freedom, where you can fulfill your aspiration. And in the long term, 
if you have more consideration for others, you cannot jeopardize the fate of future generations who will be there. So they have natural rights. It's not the kind of right that you can ask for, you can reciprocate because they don't exist. Nevertheless, they have the natural right not to suffer because of our action. So therefore, altruism or consideration for others or care, whatever you call it, is the single concept that can make those people work together, that you know, seamlessly unite the short-term, mid-term, and long-term. So that's, you know, became a kind of a passion for me. And I spent five years researching that subject. I gathered about 1,600 uh, you know, references of all kinds. And it became bigger and bigger because evolution came in the picture, economy came in the picture, education came in the picture, genocide, psychopaths, and neuroscience, uh, epigenetics, uh, name it, you know. You know, I endlessly plunge into that and try to bring that all together in that big volume. I didn't invent anything, nothing is of my doing, nothing is my ideas, but I tried to put together everything that was about altruism and compassion in philosophy, science, and I think it kind of makes a basis for further reflection. I was actually able to attend the meeting that you mentioned of Mind and Life Europe on care and caring for life, which was a really wonderful conversation. And something that uh, you all were discussing and part of it really struck me, there was a discussion about what classifies as life, uh, as if this is will determine where we should place our care, how big is that umbrella, these kinds of things. And somebody brought up, why does it even have to be about living systems? And then I think you mentioned the concept of interdependence and how really it's everything. It's the entire system and planet that we're living in. And your care or compassion doesn't necessarily need to be only towards even life or, or living beings. So do you want to share a little bit about what you were saying there? Yes. So I think we can distinguish sentience and living uh, because plants are living. Of course, they are studies that shows an incredible connections between trees through the mushroom and whatever. Yes. Fantastic. <laughs> but that's more like a precisely one of the best illustration of interdependence without sentience. I mean, it's not like a tree is thinking to delay some decision or to wait decision. It just happened to this incredible magic mesh of interdependence that says that everything is related to each other. So there's a perfect example of interdependence and life is fundamentally interdependent. But it will be far-fetched to say trees is sentient or if you speak to your plant, they will grow better. I think this is a little bit hoo-hoo. But, but there's a lot of interesting works in that field and definitely there's a deep interconnection and the signals can be are sent by some trees to others but it's more like, you know, smells and flavor that provoke a reaction. So evolution can certainly select for that without sentience. No, that's life. And life being interdependent, and we are part of life because we are alive, plus we have a, a consciousness. 
So that's a little extra <laughs> compared to inanimate things, you know. Even stones are part of life, but, you know, I'm not into a pantheistic that they have a little bit of consciousness. Of course, they have a level of complexity, of organization, of information, but sentience, I think, is a little bit something else. But we are intimately connected with those. You know, when people say, oh, no, humans could extract themselves from nature. It's so stupid. It's like saying I, I'm extracted myself out of my body. It's impossible. You totally belong to this interdependence of biodiversity and life. So that's why protecting life is also protecting sentient beings who make the difference between happiness and suffering. I think a tree can die, a stone can be broken, but you know, if you throw a computer through the window, it doesn't suffer. <laughs> and the other computer on my desk is not mourning. <laughs> <laughs> and even uh, Deep Blue, who beat Gasparov in chess, had no clue about beating anyone. <laughs> and having defeated the world champion, there's no sentience. Okay. So, yes, there's a difference between life and sentient beings. Sentient beings are part of life, but life is more. But since we are interconnected, compassion about life is not compassion for wishing life as such not to suffer, to be free from the cause of suffering and to find the happiness and its cause, as we do for sentient beings, but out of benevolence for the whole interdependent system that includes sentient beings who will feel the consequences of that, we want to be mindful of preserving the integrity and the harmony of that system and not disrupting it because that will end up in suffering for sentient beings and they are not disconnected. There's no sentient beings on one side, life on the other side, inanimate things on the other side, the oceans and the water and the, the sky, everything is deeply interconnected. Therefore, they are associated with our happiness and suffering, even though they are not sentient. So I think this is an important distinction. Yeah, thank you. It feels like this view of interdependence is really intimately connected with compassion and altruism and care, like you were just speaking about. Like, if you have that view, it's almost a natural response, right, that you have more care for this entire system that you are also a part of. Yeah, because you, you respect it, and therefore you are concerned, and therefore it's a global concern for the whole thing, because the whole thing functions together. You cannot separate those two. Yeah. But it broaches another concept, which is awe or wonderment. And our friend Dashiell Keltner just wrote a book on awe. I did a photo book on, on wonderment. And wonderment, you know, is also your sense of self goes away a yes. little bit because it's something bigger than you. It, you can be in awe or wonderment for the fantastic pristine landscape or the smile of a child or a newborn or an elderly, toothless elderly who looks at you with kindness. And that's something also that's bigger than yourself. And if you have awe for the environment, then you want to respect it. You're not going to destroy what amazes you. And therefore, you are concerned by the, by the state of the environment. And therefore, it leads to, the concern leads to action. So I argued in the photo book I did on wonderment that wonderment was actually an important factor for being inspired to preserve the environment, other species, and also to take care of human beings. 
Mm. Yeah, thank you. I was going to ask you about photography because some listeners may not know, but you're also an amazing photographer. And usually if you're giving a talk, you're showing these beautiful photographs that you've taken along with um, what you're saying, and it's a really powerful effect. So I was just wondering, it's great to hear you say that inspiring awe in your surroundings will help move towards this embracing interconnection and, and feeling compassion and love. So I'm wondering for you, if you view that as a kind of contemplative practice or how you engage with the practice of photography. Well, I don't want to be too pretentious. <laughs> it's something that I love. <laughs> yeah. You know, I started when I was 13 years old. I had a photograph teacher who is now 82 who was a kind of uh, living in the forest, kind of one of the pioneer of uh, animal and nature photography in France. There was only two or three uh, in the 60s. So he gave me, he taught me photography. And it was, uh, you know, I, I kept that all my life. At different times, I photographed more or less. When I left for India for good, I just have a, one camera and I photographed mostly my spiritual master, which allowed me to do, you know, a wonderful book in homage to them, like called Journey to Enlightenment. But then, you know, I, I went on and photographed, you know, people like I did a book called 108 Smiles, when I did an introduction based on Paul Ekman's work on smiles. And I did this book on Wonderman. Now I want to do a book on painting with light. So I would mm. say more that it's my favorite way to get distracted. <laughs> <laughs> so I did a book called Motionless Journey, which is equivalent of staying two years in my hermitage in Nepal without moving. So it's motionless. But there was this incredible light because I see 200 miles of the Himalaya. Mm. Then below, there's a forest with a lot of birds. And so, and sometimes mist and sometimes moonlight. So over two years of staying in my hermitage, I had a book, you know, taking a photo every two weeks. So I called Motionless Journey. And there's a new edition in French 15 years later because I'm still motionless there, but there's more <laughs> photos. So this is something about wonderment, about nature. And then one the matter about human beings is to, you know, give us confidence in the basic goodness of human beings. Of course, we know we can become like, you know, dictators, like we have a few active now uh, for the terrible misery of humanity. But deep within, if we don't distort that, there's a kind of basic goodness that can fall in the mud, but somehow it's still like a nutjet of gold. Even in the mud, you can pick it up, wash it. And so the fundamental belief is that human nature, there's always something that is untouched. That we call it Buddha nature in Buddhism. Some scientists said it's the stronger predispositions toward altruism and cooperation than the opposite. But whatever the case might be, we believe that this is still deep within, even it's covered in many layers. So I think through photography, both portraits of great spiritual masters or of innocent children or very lovely elderly people. I want to give back this confidence in the potential of human beings that human nature is not fundamentally bad. And so that's why I mostly photograph that aspect of human beings. I've seen a lot of suffering and tragedy, but that's not my cup of tea for photography. I'm not a war photographer. I'm not photographing famine. It's necessary to awake consciousness, definitely, but this is not what I feel to contribute through photography. Mm. So recently I did a big exhibition in Paris 
you know, huge, 150 huge photos in the big arch called the Arch of La Défense. It sat for six months and it was an aim to beauty, spiritual beauty, human beauty, the beauty of untouched wilderness and mm. the beauty of compassion. Mm. You live such an interesting life, Mathieu. I feel like on one side, you have such a quiet, simple life in your hermitage. And then you also exist on the world stage, you know, with <laughs> going to major cities and all the media. And you just had an art exhibition. <laughs> so I'm wondering how that is for you to go back and forth between those worlds. Um, is it ever exhausting or how do you manage it? Well, dear Wendy, except for you, I'm not going back and forth anymore. <laughs> well, I appreciate you doing this. <laughs> I decided that at 70 years old, it's time to move to a new chapter, just as the same way I left Pasteur Institute to go to India. You know, in 97, when I did The Monk and Philosopher, it was not a, a deliberate decision. It happened. So I can't say it was bad because those 25 years, you know, somehow they bore some fruits, we could say. And one of them is the humanitarian organization I co-founded in 2000, Karuna Sechen, that now helps 400,000 people every year mm. in the field of extreme poverty, social work, health, education, mostly in India, Nepal, and Tibet. But we do a little bit also now in Europe. You know, and we discussing together, going to the lab that came out of that. So I can't say I regret that, but still 25 years is a long time. And now I'm, you know, about at the end of my life. I hope it will still some years to come. Who knows? Maybe two minutes, maybe 10 <laughs> years, maybe more. Who knows? My mother is almost 100 now in a few months. So maybe yeah. I have good genes. I'm not bet on that, but impermanence may come anytime. But now it's no more the time to clown around. So I decided that I want to go back to my original vocation of as a practitioner and as a translator. Mm. So now I'm engaged in translating an 800-page uh, text or book, which is really wonderful, from Tibetan into English and French. And so that's what I do from six in the morning all day long and walking in the forest and taking care of my mom and doing some practice. So uh, I really uh, basically almost all public uh, sort of, you know, activities and new projects, except photography, <laughs> I gave up that. <laughs> So I'm not doing any more conferences except, you know, when the book, uh, Notebooks of a Wandering Monk came out, I did a few. But more now is the exception, no more like my way of life. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know our, our time is running out. This has been so wonderful. I, I'm just curious of a personal question, if I might. Um, you mentioned that you're taking care of your elderly mother, who's almost 100. And so I know that this phase of life and becoming a caretaker can be a very... I don't know, a very intense period. And I'm just thinking of all of your work on care and compassion and altruism and um, has that very personal experience given you any mm. different insights or how are you relating to that? Well, you know, uh, when I stopped doing all this uh, running around, I thought, okay, now I can go to my hermitage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, my mother in the meantime, she's going strong. Strong, but she can't walk. She lost her memory. So she's totally 100% dependent. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's quite extraordinary that at the same time, you know, she reads aloud four or five hours a day. Mm. 
and she sings a lot. <laughs> and when the some caregivers come, she say, "I love you. You are beautiful." So she's very positive. But she basically recognized me. That's about all, although not always. So I'm doing mommy sitting instead of babysitting. And I didn't expect that because at 77, I said, okay, now I stopped. I can go back to my hermitage. Well, not the case for now. So I'm taking care most of the time. I don't do the main work because I'm not qualified, but there are two wonderful uh, helpers who take turn. So I can go away for some time, but I feel it's nice for me to be there. It's good for her. It's good for the caregivers. So is this the time to do that? And I'm happy to do so. But I understand it can be so challenging. Sometimes there are moments in the daytime where, you know, she's a bit uh, more animated and she she wants to go somewhere to Brittany or even I'm next two meters away, she calls me at the top of her voice. And so it can be a bit challenging, but most of the time we also have good laughs, what she says. And one time someone asked her, so what do we really want? And she said, oh, everything. Oh, everything. Why? <laughs> because that's what I like. <laughs> but she used to be very, very, very funny. Now she doesn't make much joke anymore. But she sings songs that she heard when she was young and we never heard before, you know. Oh, well. She wants to see people that are dead for last 60 years ago. Yeah. So it's quite puzzling. And I wonder what will happen to us when we get ever to that age, yes? Mm-hmm, yeah. But I think, you know, in France, many people have to put their parents in elderly home because they work, they have children, so they, they have no choice. So I have the choice to keep her at home because as long as we can take care of her, at least medically, then I think I feel such a blessing to, that she stays in their home, yes. Well, you are a blessing to her and to all of us in the world. Um, I've so appreciated this time. Is there anything that you want to share, like closing perspectives or thoughts for the audience or anything that we uh, haven't touched on that you want to talk about? Well, you know, again, it was quite unexpected, but mind and life uh, you know, play a great role in my life in terms of uh, connecting with these wonderful people I met through mind and life and also being with disorderness very often, and meeting these wonderful people from all kinds of walks of life. So that was a, a major enrichment for me and uh, enjoyed thoroughly. So at, at some point I was very engaged both in the research and also being part of the first the US board then Mind and Life Europe. But then now I'm sort of, you know, the elders, one told me never required, always welcome. So, okay, fine, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> so I cannot be active very much, but from time to time, I'm so glad to join. I was also in Dharamsala recently for the 25th anniversary. So it was wonderful to reconnect with everyone, those who could come and those who are still alive. So yes, it's, uh, it has been uh, one of the best things that happened uh, in my having to come back to the West, yes. Well, we're so grateful uh, for everything that you've brought. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for chatting with us today and sending you all the best. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Wendy. It's lovely to see you again, even from the distance. <laughs> this episode was edited and produced by me and Phil Walker. And music on the show is from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal. Show notes and resources for this and other episodes can be found at podcast.mindandlife.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. 
And if something in this conversation sparked insight for you, let us know. You can send an email or voice memo to podcast at mindandlife.org. Mind and Life is a production of the Mind and Life Institute. Visit us at mindandlife.org, where you can learn more about how we bridge science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action towards flourishing. If you value these conversations, please consider supporting the show. You can make a donation at mindandlife.org under support. Any amount is so appreciated, and it really helps us create this show. Thank you for listening.